You can turn your Bibles over to Matthew chapter 8. We're in the Gospel of Matthew. We're continuing our study through this Gospel. We will be taking a break uh, for Christmas and uh, just kind of a little pause and doing some Christmas sermons. But um, uh, for right now, you can turn over to to Matthew chapter 8. You know, we've been studying through uh, this portion of Scripture for some time. And uh, last week, as we kind of set this chapter up, as we began this chapter, we uh, mentioned that chapter 8 really expresses um, what Matthew's trying to do is express the Lord's authority. And the reason he's having to do that is because, as you recall, in Matthew chapter 5 through 7, he just preached this tremendous sermon called the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, as a result, he basically took the world of the, the religious world of the religious leaders of his day and turned it upside down, literally. And uh, he constantly was saying, well, you've heard it said, but I say unto you. And so he preached this sermon that just kind of blew everybody away <clears throat> as far as the religious leaders in Jesus' day. And they were all asking several questions. They were saying, well, whose authority do you speak, first of all? Who do you think you are kind of attacking our, our uh, religion this way? Where do you come from? They had all these questions concerning Christ. But the main issue was they wanted to know where his authority came from. And so Jesus, in chapters 8 and 9, Matthew tells us, goes on to establish his authority as the Son of God. And in these two chapters, Jesus, in effect, is telling the world that he is God by not only his words, but his actions. And we see time and time again in these two chapters where Jesus displays his uh, supernatural power in a way that could only be attributable to God. If you were there and you saw this, you would have to say this is definitely a God thing going on here. Humans could not just kind of fabricate something like this. And so Matthew continues his effort to pretend to to present the credentials of the king, and he does that in in chapters 8 and 9. Now, you have to understand how this scene is is seen back then. Uh, Back in Jesus' time, they didn't have uh, the medicine and the hospitals and the doctors that we have today. So if you were stricken with a disease, it could become very, very, very serious like that. You couldn't just go and get a shot for the flu, or you couldn't do things like that. And so the environment, the atmosphere back then was just filled with this fear in the hearts of people, really. If they caught certain diseases, boy, you know, it could be their demise. And even back then, people didn't live that long. Uh, It was very common for someone to die in their 20s from a disease that they contracted. And so there was certain diseases that they just didn't have a cure for. They didn't know how to deal with it. And there were certain plagues that would wipe out whole cities, even countries. And so there was this kind of fear in the hearts of the people concerning diseases back then. And there was all sorts of of diseases from atrophy, blindness, dumbness, dumbness, muteness. Uh, They couldn't speak. Uh, Skin diseases, as we saw last week. Um, They had leprosy, paralysis, fever, which Matthew 8 speaks about here in the three miracles that Jesus addresses. But all those diseases existed in the time of Jesus uh, in various forms. And there was this fear as a result of it. 
Um, today, probably the fear, the, the disease that probably strikes the, the, the cord of, of fear in a lot of hearts of people is, is cancer. You know, when you hear that word, it's just like, oh boy, because there is not a cure for cancer. And so it's, it's kind of an overwhelming thing. So that's the environment in which Jesus is dealing with the people that are surrounding him during that time. It's, it's neat to see Jesus not just deal with the spiritual needs of his followers and the people that followed him, but he also dealt with the physical ones. Uh, he showed a lot of compassion. Uh, we saw last week how he reached out and he touched the leper. He didn't have to touch him, but he did. He was making a statement. Um, and when Jesus began to heal people, you have to understand that virtually all of these diseases, for the most part, if Jesus came in contact with them, they were eliminated. Just amazing. And so we can't fully appreciate that because we manage disease rather well in our society in which we live. But back then, there wasn't any management of the disease. And it was kind of difficult for these people. But Jesus came along and he began to heal people. And he swept through Palestine and his healing power basically affected thousands and thousands of people. And in John 14, 11, he said this, believe me for the very work's sake. In other words, just look at what I'm doing and you'll come to understand who I am. There's no way that you could rationally look at the healings that Jesus did in his time and say, oh, that was just a fabrication. <laughs> that was just a... You know, Ponzi game. That was Ponzi scheme. That was just, you know, shell game, whatever it might be. No, it was real. Matthew twelve fifteen tells us, when Jesus knew about the conspiracy of the Pharisees to kill him, he withdrew himself from there and great multitudes followed him. And it says he healed them all. All of them. In Matthew 14, 14, it says, Jesus went forth and he saw the multitude and was moved with compassion toward them and he healed all their sick. Jesus healed all literally who came to him. And in doing so, he basically banished disease from Palestine in his time. It was amazing. That's why so many people were flocking to him. Now, I began to wonder how... Does Jesus, or how did Jesus heal people? How did he do it? First of all, I, I think that, you know, in comparison to some of the contemporary so-called healers of our day, we see that Jesus healed with just a word, or maybe just with the touch. That's all he had to do. There was no gimmicks, there was no exercises, there was no, you know, big stage thing going on, no fanfare. He just reached out and he touched the leper and said, be whole, and he was. Jesus also healed instantly. Now, doctors are good. It's great to go to the doctor and have a good thing and get treated and everything. But Jesus healed instantly. In other words, you never had to go to the doctor. You went to Jesus and Jesus said, be healed, and you were healed completely. Like we saw last week, the leper, who was probably disfigured beyond belief. And yet, immediately, as soon as Jesus touched him and said, be healed, be whole, immediately, his appendages grew back. Whatever he lost, his disfigurement was gone. He looked like a brand new person because he was healed instantly. He talks about the woman who had a bleeding problem in, in Mark. And it says that that hour, that very hour, she was healed immediately. The ten lepers were healed instantaneously. Luke 5 says that leprosy immediately departed the leper that we looked at last week. You think of the crippled 
man at the pool of Bethesda. Immediately, he became well. The blind man, when he washed his eyes, he saw completely. He didn't have to go get a checkup. He didn't have to do anything. Thirdly, Jesus not only heals with a word or a touch, but he heals instantly. He also healed totally. There is no recuperation. You know, we go to the doctor and we get an operation. Okay, now we start the healing process. And we got to go through this recuperation or rehab, physical therapy. Many of you have gone through it. You know what that's like. It's not fun. It can be painful at times. Can you imagine somebody in Jesus' day, 35 years, never having even taken a step, never walked? And Jesus says, be made whole, get up and walk. And all of a sudden, the man is up and walking. That's hard for us to understand. I mean, just the atrophy in his muscles, I mean, would be, you know, incredible. And yet he was healed totally. He didn't have to go to rehabilitation. And there's never any rehabilitation in any miracle that Jesus performed. It was instant, it was total, it was immediate. And then also he healed everybody that he basically came in contact with. He didn't have a screening. His disciples weren't out in front of him saying, okay, what's this guy's problem? Oh, he's in a wheelchair. What's the problem? Okay, well, let him through. <laughs> you know, you, you see these crusades they put on. And I've heard people that drive thousands of miles to go to somebody's crusade just because they want to get healed. And they're not even to dark, allowed to darken the, the, the door. They won't let him in. Because they pre-screen everybody. Sad. In Luke 4.40, it says, While the sun was setting, all who had any sick with various diseases brought them to him, meaning Jesus, and laying his hands on every one of them, he was healing them. And it was until it was complete. I don't think Jesus ever, to my recollection, turned someone away who wasn't healed. He also healed what they call organic disease. He healed things like crippled legs and withered hand and blind, blind eyes and paralysis. I mean, that would show a miracle. If somebody came to you with a crippled leg and you knew they were crippled from birth and all of a sudden they were up running around walking. Incredible. He didn't heal lower back pain. Or some other functional disorder that we hear, see the healers healing today. And then the last thing I see is how Jesus healed was he also not only healed people, but he actually raised people from the dead. He raised people from the dead. Now you hear this on occasion out there, you know, oh yeah, so, you know, it's never been verified. It's never been, you know, uh, these guys, I, I think they're just kind of making things up. And the reason they are is to get your dollars. I mean, that's the bottom line. But Matthew, over and over again, indicates that there was something special about Jesus. And you wonder about all these things that he did. All these things, and yet the Pharisees still didn't believe. They still attributed his work to Beelzebub or to Satan. Now, last week we looked at the leper and... Uh, just follow along and I'll, I'll read the text for us this morning out of Matthew chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. Now, when he had come down from the mountain, great multitudes followed him. And behold, a leper came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus put out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. 
Immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Now this was the most despised man in society back then. He was a leper. He was basically a living illustration of sin. That's what he was. And so the man was not only an outcast because of the disease itself, but also because of that being that living illustration of sin. He was unclean ceremonially. ceremonially. And so you can imagine the Pharisees of the day looking at Jesus healing and actually touching this individual. It just blew their mind. I mean, they could not imagine anybody would start such a, a ministry by reaching out to such a person as a leper. I mean, if he wanted to be popular, he could have maybe went and healed some of the Pharisees. I'm sure some of them were sick, but it doesn't say he did that. He reached out to the kind of the lower caste of society. And remember, we pointed out just quickly and review four things about that man. First of all, he came with confidence. In other words, he didn't care that he wasn't supposed to be in a crowd of people because he had leprosy. He didn't even say unclean, unclean. He just barged right in, walked right up to Jesus and said, hey, I'm here to worship you, Lord. And I know you have the power to make me clean if it's your will. He came with confidence. Secondly, he came with reverence because it says that he worshipped. Thirdly, he came with humility because he didn't demand a healing from Jesus. He says, hey, if you will, if you're willing, you can do it. And then he also came with faith. You can make me clean. I believe it. That's what he was saying. And we kind of drew the parallel to someone who was coming to Christ. When someone comes to Christ, they have to come to Christ out of their desperation of their sin. You can't come to Jesus thinking everything's okay. Why would you need a Savior? You also have to come worshiping in humility and in faith. See, that person is a person who can be redeemed. That person is a person who can be saved. And so the healing of this leper became kind of an analogy for us of salvation. And you remember, he told this leper two things. Only two things after he healed him. First of all, he says, you know what? Just go and obey the law of Moses. What it tells you to do, go do it. The law of Moses had a condition for leprosy in, in Leviticus. And if somebody got leprosy, they were supposed to do certain things. Well, if somebody by chance was healed of leprosy, they also were told to do certain things. Because you had to have it verified. It had to happen over an eight-day period. And there were sacrifices to be made and inspections of the body and all sorts of things. Because you didn't want somebody who thought they were healed of leprosy back out in the society. Because other people could catch it. And so he said, go to the temple and do what you should do. And then secondly, he said, be a witness to them. See, that's really what happens in our lives too. As we come to Christ, after we've been redeemed, first of all, we should look at God's word and be willing to obey it. And then secondly... Because of our obedience, we should be a testimony to those who don't know Christ. Unfortunately, he didn't listen. <laughs> he didn't go to the temple right away. He left the little healing service with Jesus and went out in the streets and did just the opposite. Started sh shouting and screaming and saying, hey, I'm healed. Look at me, look at me, look at me. Brought attention to himself. And if you knew who that leper was, if you were in that community, you would probably say, okay, Joe... Aren't you the leper, Joe the leper? Yeah. You know, we got Joe the plumber. Well, we got Joe the leper. So, you know, Joe the leper, what happened? You know, you got healed. Yeah, yeah, Jesus healed me. Jesus healed me. And he's giving all this testimony. And if you were any kind of a, a, a religious person of the day, you would say, well, that's cool. Where's your certificate? 
Because the law says you're supposed to go to the temple right away and get a certificate. Where's your certificate? And I can imagine Joe the leper going, oh, well, I'm going to get to that. See, he did things backwards. So immediately his testimony basically was flushed down the tubes because he didn't obey the law. He didn't do what Jesus told him to do. That was the leper. Well, today we're in a total different kind of scenario here in, in Matthew chapter 8. And look at, as I read this, beginning in verse 5. Now, when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a, a centurion came to him, pleading with him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. And the centurion answered and said, Lord, I'm not worthy that you should come under my roof, but only speak a word and my servant will be healed. For I am also a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another one, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to those who followed, Assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. And I say to you that many will come from east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into utter darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, Go your way, and as you have believed, so let it be done unto you. And his servant was healed that same hour. Now, we see here someone who was very respected. He wasn't someone who was disrespected like the leper. A a, a Roman soldier back then, even though the, the Jews didn't really care for him because they were in bondage to him, they still had the respect. And especially this, this man here, because you know, you, you find this man who's considered to be an outcast by Jewish people because he was a Gentile. So the two don't mix, you understand that. And worse than that, he was a Roman soldier. He was a Gentile who was a Roman soldier. And even worse than that, he was what they called a Samaritan, a Gentile who was basically uh, born of, of a, a mixture of marriage between a Jew and a Samaritan. Or in, and a Gentile, and the, the Samaritans were born, and they were just despised by the Jewish people. And so he had basically three strikes against him here. So he was almost as despised as the leper. And yet, the Lord healed his servant. And so he really kind of sets the precedent here right from the very beginning. You look, I'm not here to put on a big fancy show. I'm not here to get people just to like me. I'm here basically to reach out to whoever needs to be reached out to. And he crossed all borders. Well, first of all, let's look here. It says in verse 5, and when Jesus had entered Capernaum. Now, Capernaum is an interesting place. Um, it's, it's basically after Jesus finished his sermon on the mount. Um, he came down from the mountain, it says, and he entered Capernaum. And it's this little town northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. And it's, it's probably one of the most beautiful places that you can go. I mean, there's flowers and there's all sorts of things, but it's also basically deserted because Jesus cursed it. No one lives there. And uh, it's not a thriving city anymore. I have some slides that I want to show you of this place. So, Sam, go ahead and put those up there if you can. And this is basically driving uh, over to the Mount of Beatitudes. And uh, go ahead and show the next one. And you can see the, the, the hillsides. A lot of it's kind of like Southern California. This is up where Jesus would have taught the um, Sermon on the Mount. Go to the next slide. 
You can see the Catholic Church basically took over this site and they're protecting it. And so they're very uh, particular about what you wear. And you're not allowed to wear any shorts there. Go to the next slide. This is the Capernaum, the town of Jesus, as it's known. And this site is overseen by the Catholic Church. So there's some religious you know, stuff there, whatever. But for the most part, at least they're protecting this archaeological site. Go to the next slide. This is a, a monastery, basically, that's up there. That They have these friars that oversee the, the site, and they, they're caretakers of it. Let's have the next one. This is Dr. Hawking with one of the, the friars who was up there. He's dressed in his, his uh, robe, in, in the, uh, the, the Catholic robes that they wear. Go ahead and go to the next slide. This is a big statue that's up there of Peter, because obviously the Catholic Church believes that Peter founded the Catholic Church, which we don't believe that, but they do. And so they have this big, huge statue up there of Peter. Go to the next one. Here is actually the, the, the plaque that states you're, you're here at, in Capernaum, and you have not only the town of Jesus, but you also have the house of Simon Peter. And you actually are able to, to look down and see his literal house, the ruins of it anyway. And then also they have a synagogue there. Go to the next slide. And these are just some of the, the uh, this is the, the synagogue that was built that a lot of people believe that this centurion, because as you look over in Mark, as we're going to in a, in a couple minutes, the, 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 the account in Mark tells us that the Jews liked this centurion because he built them a synagogue. And they actually believe that this is a site maybe where that centurion bought that property and built this synagogue. Go ahead and go to the next. And these are some of the remains that are there of the, the, the synagogue and the, the compound that's there. Go ahead. This is some of the house that we saw. Go to the next slide. Go ahead. This is actually Peter's house. And he kind of showed, pointed out to us where the, you know, the bedrooms were and things like that. It's just amazing how, how you know, we think of, of, of these things. And I think, I think that's the last slide, right? But, you know, when you, when you look at that and you realize, man, there is a place, Capernaum, and it's not even a thriving city anymore because Jesus cursed it. Uh, that's amazing that the Bible, once again, holds true. Well, this, this centurion apparently had the respect of even the Jewish people in his day. And, uh, you know, a lot of times when we run across centurions in the Bible, the Bible generally speaks pretty well of them, if you notice that. But this guy was also a Samaritan, and so he had not a whole lot going for him. Um, but on the other hand, uh, he earned the respect of the, the, the Jewish people of the day, and uh, they, they recommended that Jesus heal his, uh, his servant. Now, when you see the, the, the centurion approach Jesus, you see there in verse 6, it says, Here's what he said. Lord, my servant is lying at home um, with, with what we might call palsy or some kind of a neurological disease that's causing him to, to have some paralysis in his body. But it's interesting that he says, first of all, he calls Jesus Lord, just like the leopard did. In other words, he's recognizing his divine authority. All right? And he petitions Jesus on the behalf of what we would say is, is, a, is, a, is a slave who was a child. 
And they had servants in their homes back then. And it wasn't uncommon when they, they had a, a, a mother and father as a servant, they would also enlist the child as a servant. And they would do certain tasks around and they were cared for and, and everything. But it was, it was something that was, uh, back in, in that day, slaves were not looked up to. Okay, it wasn't something that you would look at, oh, gee, you know, that guy's a slave. Boy, he's got really a lot of things going for him. All right. But here it's interesting that this centurion, this guy who was over probably 100 Roman soldiers, kind of a rough guy, he was concerned about a child slave. Because back then, they were looked at almost as inanimate objects in their culture, which is sad, but that's, that's the way it is. Um, Aristotle said this, there could be no friendship or justice toward inanimate things. Indeed, not even toward a horse, an ox, or a slave, since master and slave have nothing in common. He said, a slave is a living tool, and a tool is an inanimate slave. Sad commentary on history. But that's how they were viewed. Although the Romans viewed slaves as just possessions as things, this centurion was obviously different. He really was. And he wasn't coming to Jesus saying, Lord, you know, I'm sick. I need this. I need that. No, he was coming to Jesus on behalf of a, of a child who was his servant in his house. And obviously his reputation kind of goes before him because if you look over at, at Luke chapter 4, or chapter 7, excuse me, Luke chapter 7, And just look at verses 4 and 5. Luke chapter 7, verses 4 and 5. It says, And when when they came to Jesus, they begged him earnestly, saying, The one for whom we should do this was deserving. Speaking of the centurion. Uh, Luke 7, verses 4 and 5. For he loves our nation and has built us a synagogue. All right? Now, there's kind of a a little, not contradiction, but there's an interesting thing. If you read the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 8, and then you go over to Luke chapter 7, and you read the account there, you're saying, well, wait a minute. Matthew makes it sound like the centurion himself came to Jesus. Whereas Luke says, no, no, no. Um, Basically, he sent kind of a Jewish leader's entourage to Jesus on behalf of the centurion. Well, that's what they believe happened. And I think Matthew just kind of leaves out that part, and he just says, well, there was this dialogue. He doesn't say how the dialogue took place. There was just a dialogue between the centurion and Jesus. All right? He left out the part that the dialogue was carried by these Jewish leaders because the the Roman soldier didn't feel um, worthy enough to be in the presence of Christ. And so here we see this guy's reputation go before him. He had a good reputation with the Jewish leaders. He built them a synagogue. He obviously was not your, your basic Roman soldier. In verse, uh, in verse 7 of Matthew 8, he says, And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. Okay, now remember, he's probably saying this through the Jewish leaders. So the, the leaders, the, the, the uh, religious people run back to the centurion and say, Hey, Jesus said he's going to come. This is the deal. He's on his way. All right? And uh, that was basically his reward for his faith. Um, Jesus told the messengers sent by the centurion that he would come and heal the, the Gentiles, um, the Samaritan's uh, servant. 
But according to Luke, when you go over to Luke and you read this account, obviously Jesus never arrived at the Roman soldier's house. And I think it was because the Roman soldier, realizing that Jesus was on his way to his house, said, I'm not worried. I'm not even a Jew. I can't have this, 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 this Jewish man come in. That would be a defilement for him to come in the house of a Gentile. I don't want to defile him. And so he sent word back and said, hey, you know, you don't have to come. And here's what his response was here in verse 8. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof, but only speak the word and my servant will be healed. Look at the humility of this guy. I'm not worthy that you should come under my roof. Basically, he's telling Jesus, hey, don't come any further. Just stop right there. I'm not worthy for you to come into my house. It would be a wasted trip. You know, it wasn't like they had their little moped and they were, you know, jetting down the dirt road over to the centurion's house. I mean, they had to walk everywhere. So, you know, he's, he's thinking about this. And his message is expressed by his humility. Don't, I don't want you to come in. I'm not worthy to have you in my house. See, today, that's so different than today. There's some people that think somehow they're doing God a favor by becoming a Christian. You know, look at me. Now I'm a Christian and God, you know, I'm, I'm God's gift to, to everybody on earth. Uh, the truth is, beloved, that we're not even worthy to enter his presence. So I love the centurion's response here. I mean, this is a guy who worked his way up through the ranks. He probably was over a hundred some men. Think of him as a kind of a, gom- a combat-oriented drill sergeant. And yet, on the other side, he was clearly gentle. He was clearly humble. He was clearly meek and sensitive. He cared for his sick slave, this child. He was probably a a God-fearing Gentile. And then you look at his faith in verses 8 and 9. Not only did he come to Jesus in humility, but he says, only speak a word and the servant will be healed. In other words, I know you don't have to come here to do it, Jesus. I've seen your power probably on display. That's probably where he gets the knowledge of Jesus' authority. But he also understands Jesus' ability. He probably have seen people uh, healed by Jesus. And he thought, wow, okay, he doesn't need to come to my house to do this. I don't want people to think that he's going to defile and break the law and all this stuff, enter the house of a Gentile. So, hey, you know what? You don't have to come. Just say the word. Do we have faith like that today? I mean, you know, we have a little problem. Things get in a tizzy in our life. And man, we, you know, the last place we go is God. You know, we sit around and worry, 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 worry about things. And we wonder why we have all these physical problems due to the worry. (laughs) And God's saying, hey, I'm right here. I could deal with this thing right now if you want. You know, just, just be willing to submit to my will. So he saw his ability, also knew his authority. It says there, for I'm a man under authority, having soldiers under me. I say unto this man, go, and he goes, and another one come, and he comes. To my servant, I say, do this, and he does it. You know, what, people say, well, what, what does that mean? Why would he bring that up? What he's doing here, he's, he's acknowledging Jesus' authority. He already called him Lord. And so he knows, apparently, who he is. And what he's saying is, I understand your authority. There might be some around here who might question it. (laughs) He's probably looking at the religious leaders of Jesus' day. But as a man of authority, I know 
what it means to have authority. And I can see authority in you. I can see authority in everything you do and in everything you say. And so he was clearly under the right impression of who Christ was. And then you look at verse 10. And it says, when Jesus heard it, he marveled. And he said to his followers, assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. You ever wonder what you'd have to do to make Jesus marvel in your presence? I mean, this is the Son of God. He knows everything. And yet this guy's faith just kind of, boy, it made Jesus marvel at it. That's some unique faith. tells us that Jesus here in his humanness was literally amazed at the faith of this guy and that he was a Gentile. And he kind of rebukes the leaders of that day by, by his follow-up there. He says, Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. I bet you they're standing around going, Ouch! <laughs> You're pointing to a Gentile? A Samaritan? A Roman soldier? And you're saying they have, he has greater faith than us? The religious, pious people of Jesus' day? Probably standing around with their robes on? Even Christ's own disciples were rebuked, do you remember? When he said, you know, you have little faith. Philip asked Jesus to show them the Father. And Jesus replied, Have I been with you such a long time and you, haven't, you don't know me, <laughs> Philip? Thomas wouldn't believe until he saw Jesus in person after the resurrection. But this centurion, this Gentile Samaritan soldier, the lowest of the low, had great faith. See, his example shows that some Gentiles would demonstrate greater faith than those in Israel. And you know what? That's not a far cry from what we see today. You know, the church of Jesus Christ today is mainly made up of whom? Gentiles. I mean, there there are some Messianic Jews that that come into the fold, but very few. And Jesus kind of was clear here. He said, you know what? This guy has more faith than, than most of you Jewish folks here. And then he basically gives him a prediction. He says in verse 11, I say to you that many shall come from the east and the west shall sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. See, there's going to be a coming time, a great and glorious kingdom called the millennial kingdom. And it's going to be followed by the eternal kingdom. That's what prophecy tells us. And in that first kingdom, God's wonderful promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob will come to pass. Salvation comes through Abraham's seed. We know that. But we are sons of Abraham by faith. And so we receive blessing because we're part of that same covenant. And that's precisely what Jesus is saying here in verse 11. The many who would come from the east and the west are those Gentiles who would come into the fold. Which is literally, if you think about it, east and west of Israel. And so he predicted that his kingdom would be filled with Gentiles. And then he went on and he basically denied the religious of his day. And he made this shocking kind of a a statement here. 
Um, he says in verse 11, he says, And I say to you, many will come from the east and the west and sit down to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. And then verse 12, But the sons of the kingdom, you can say, quote, sons of the kingdom, <laughs> will be cast out into utter darkness. Who's he talking to? He's talking to the religious leaders of his day. It's a very powerful statement that Jesus is making here. The Jewish people were called the sons of the kingdom because by right, um, they are are heirs to the promise. In spite of that, many here uh, will not be part of the kingdom because they don't come by faith. They think it's simply because of their physical lineage. In John chapter 8, verses 37 and following, it says this, I know that you are of Abraham's seed, But you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak that which I have seen with my father. And you uh, do that which you have seen with your father. They answered and said unto him, Abraham is our father. Can't you just hear them, you know, dressed in the religious, you know, uh, robes and everything. Abraham is our father. And Jesus said unto him, if you were Abraham's children, you would not, you would do the works of Abraham. But you seek to kill me. You are father. You are of your father, the devil. Wow. What a strong rebuke Jesus placed upon them. And basically, he kind of made that prediction that, you know what, there's going to be more Gentiles in this kingdom than there will be Jews. And he says, as a result of that, there's going to have to be punishment involved. If you're not part of the kingdom, then there's going to be some punishment. And it it's, uses the phrase there, outer darkness. It says, but the sons of, king, of the kingdom will be cast out into the outer darkness. Why? Because of their lack of faith and trust in Christ. Now, if you think about hell, you don't hear a lot of messages on hell, but one thing you know about hell is that it's filled with fire, the Bible says, and yet it's also dark. Have you ever been in the presence of a fire and yet have it completely dark? I never have. So God does something supernaturally in hell. And uh, it's not only a place of darkness, but it's a place of fire. And it's this phenomenon that only God can create for this eternal punishment. And, you know, outer darkness, hell is a place just like heaven is a place. I mean, we're real quick to talk about heaven. We're real quick to talk about, you know, roads paved with gold and, and all sorts of things. But we don't want to talk a lot about hell. Well, it's just as real a place. And there's just as real people go there. Okay? And we we need to be reminded of that on occasion. There's going to be pain in hell. It says they're weeping and gnashing of teeth. I mean, it's a horrible place. In Matthew 13, 42, it says, And shall cast them into a furnace of fire, and there shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Matthew twenty two thirteen says, Then the king said to his servants, Bind him hand and foot and take him away and cast him into outer darkness. There shall be where there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew twenty four fifty one says, And cut him asunder and point him his portion with the hypocrites, where there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You know, whatever you do, beloved, you want to make sure you're not going there. Because it's not a blessed place. Some people say, I'm just going to go party with all my friends. No, you're not. 
I'm not saying all your friends might not be there, but don't think that you're going to be communicating with them back and forth. You're going to be totally isolated from the presence of God in a horrible place, knowing that you're there because of your sin, knowing that you're there because you had an opportunity to come to Christ, to come to the cross, and you just thought, I'll do it later. I don't need it now. You know, none of us are guaranteed another breath. I could drop dead right now. Any one of us could. And we need to be assured that when that happens, that we know where we're going. Not based on who we are. It's based on who Christ is. It's based on the work that he did on Calvary. That's where our faith and trust is. If you haven't put your faith and trust in Christ, I, I pray that you would cry out to him, be merciful to me, a sinner. And he'll, he'll, he'll answer that prayer. The last thing I see here in this text is you see this promise to the centurion in verse 13. He said, And Jesus said unto the centurion, Go your way, and as you have believed, so it be done unto you. And it says the servant was healed that same hour. Jesus said, you know what? I'll just go back home. You know, Because remember, he sent all these people to talk to him. The Roman soldier did. And so he said, hey, go back home. It's already done. It's a done deal. He's healed. I mean, can you imagine this little boy? All of a sudden, all this palsy, whatever was controlling his body is gone. He jumps out of bed. Master, I'm healed. What'd you do? And the soldier must say, it wasn't me. I mean, it's amazing. Amazing story. And I think that, that Jesus, you know, here, he didn't have to do this, but he did. And this guy's faith was just incredible. You see how, how it just promotes the glory of God. I mean, today we have this, you know, name it and claim it kind of a thing. Just got to claim that miracle. I don't see this going on here. I see somebody approaching Christ very humbly on behalf of somebody else. You know, I mean, yeah, the centurion's faith is talked about here. But can you imagine his faith after he knew that his servant was healed? The interesting thing, it doesn't talk anything about the servant's faith. Doesn't say he had any faith at all in anybody. See, the interesting thing here, what we have to point out is that, you know, somewhere in this healing business, God's sovereignty, God's sovereignty is important to understand. You know, you don't just go to God and claim a healing and think, oh, why didn't it happen? Oh, it must be your faith. Jesus healed people with no faith at all. It had nothing to do with their faith. It had to do with whether it was his will for them to be healed or not. I think of another situation in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul, you remember, Paul cried out to be healed several times. Well, guess what? It didn't happen. Does that make God a bad God? No. It just means that, you know what? Sometimes he heals people, sometimes he doesn't. But it's his sovereign choice. We don't have a right to go to God and demand anything. And we need to kind of remember that sometimes. Even in the simplest of prayers. God, is this your will that I do? I really want to do this, but is this your will that I do this? I'm going in this direction. Lord, is this the way that you want me to go? 
got this promotion at work and God, you know, he looks good. It's more money. It's better working hours, all this stuff. But God, is this what you want me to do? See, so many times we, we jump at opportunities like that. And then months later, we're kind of going, oh, how do I get myself into this? <laughs> See, what looks as a blessing sometimes is not. And God can filter those things out if we give him a chance. The other situation here, just to finish off this triad of of healings here, is the mother-in-law, Peter's mother-in-law. And not only do we see this this centurion's servant being healed, but we see this this mother-in-law who was a relative. Verse 14, it says, Now when Jesus had come to Peter's house probably the house that we looked at on the slides, he saw his wife's mother lying sick with a fever. So he touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she arose and served him. Uh, I mean, there's not not a whole lot there. You know, you see Jesus coming into the house, and uh, Mark and Luke tell us that he entered the home during the Sabbath. Obviously, he'd been at the, the synagogue. And uh, maybe they, they came afterwards to share a meal or whatever. And he saw that Peter's mother-in-law was sick. And uh, the, the disciples asked Christ to heal her. And so it's, it's you know, very clear here that, that Christ just does his sovereign work of healing. Now you say, what's, what's the big deal about a fever? Does that mean, you know, it was like 100 or whatever? I don't know. But it could be a very serious thing. It's not something to be taken lightly, especially back then they had not a lot of the medical things that we have today. And so you see that here he heals a woman. We saw how he healed a Gentile Roman soldier, a Samaritan. And then last week we looked at how he healed a leper. You take all three accounts here, all right, and you say, wow, you know, Jesus isn't winning a lot of friends here among the religious people of his day. He's reaching out to everybody that they would totally stay away from. Totally. They wouldn't go near a leper. Remember, we said they had to, to, to uh, stay, you know, on a windy day 150 feet away or six feet away on a non-windy day. Kind of crazy. They made up all these laws. He had to come in saying, unclean, unclean, and you know, everybody would scatter. Um, these were the kind of the bottom of society. And yet Jesus, in an incredible way, reaches out in three times here in Matthew 8, trying to show his deity to those in his day. You notice there in verse 15, it says, so he touched her hand and the fever left her. And what did she do? She arose and what? Served them. You know, Beloved, that's what we're called to do as Christians. So many times we get saved and then we think, oh, now, you know, I'm on top of the world. You know, and we we keep at arm's length everybody who's outside of Christ because God forbid that somehow we'd be defiled by their behavior or by them or whatever. And so we get this mentality sometimes of, you know, us for no more shut the door and we just want to get in our holy huddle and just, you know, pray all day. Well, that's okay. But there's also, we have to recognize, outside these walls, there's a world that's dying and going to hell. And we're left here to be the representatives of a Savior who wants us to reach out to them. 
And so as you look at these miracles, stop and think, okay, what is my life saying to those that I work with? What is my life saying to those in my family? What is my life saying to those that I spend time with? Does it speak of Christ? Or does it speak of contradiction? Do they look at me and go, wow, yeah, that guy goes to church on Sunday, but man, look at how he works. You know, he's at the water cooler, you know, seven hours out of the eight hours he's supposed to be working. Okay, we've got to remember that we have to be a testimony unto them who have yet to believe in Christ. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We pray, Lord, that you would, uh, just as you ministered to these people here in Matthew chapter 8, these miracles that we have seen, Lord, we pray that you would remind us that, Lord, it's not just the, the miracle of, of physical healing. But, Lord, I think the real miracle that you want to show us today is when someone comes to Christ. When someone is willing to forsake their sin. When someone is as desperate as that leper who doesn't care what people think anymore. They're going to make it to the Savior one way or another. Or maybe that Roman soldier who really risked ridicule probably from his fellow soldiers or whoever. And yet he took a stand Lord, may we be worshiping only the Son of God. And Father, that we would never, ever think of forsaking the Son of God in His offer of salvation. Because Lord, there is a, that place of outer darkness, that place called hell, where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Lord, it's a horrible place. And Father, you don't desire that anyone go there Lord, you've left us here to give that free gift of salvation, the free message of the gospel to those who have yet to hear. And Lord, we pray that you would do a healing in our cold hearts toward a lost and dying world. Rejuvenate us. Give us that burden, that passion to share Christ unashamedly. That we could see many come to you. Lord, if there's anyone here this morning who's yet to put their faith or trust in you, Lord, I pray that they would just cry out to you. Father, that they would understand their condition as a sinner, that there's no hope before a holy God for someone who is an unforgiven sinner. The only hope they have is in Christ. Father, I pray that they would cry out to you. Be merciful to me, a sinner. Lord, that you would save them. We thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' precious name, amen.